Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, deep in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, and scattered out there throughout the world, in London, we have Corey Shockey at the IISS. And in different places in Washington, D.C., we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. Um, I want to start at what is the biggest un, you know, uncovered, undercovered story of the past week. I noticed you tweeting about it a little bit, um, Rosa. Someone high up in the government of the Capitol of the most powerful nation on earth has finally broken the truth that in fact the weather is controlled by a global Jewish conspiracy. Jesus. And what I want to understand is why do I not get a vote? I know, uh, David, the least you could do would be to give us a little bit of sunshine. Yeah, right, right. Because that's what we're known for. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but you know, get, get, how did this happen, Rosa? Well, I, so, so I don't think that this is, in fact, particularly related to the Trump version of uh, Trump-inspired anti-Semitic attacks. I think this is more situated in sort of paranoid black activist uh, uh, tradition, a sub-tradition in paranoid black activism, which is that the the Jews are uh, controlling the weather, causing national disasters, natural disasters, excuse me, and national disasters at will in order to turn spigots of cash on and off and deprive uh, inner cities of funding. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, uh, you, you know, you can see strands of that, obviously, going back uh, many decades. Uh, it's obviously been utterly discredited because it is crazy and offensive. Uh, and this this guy, Trayon White, who's a D.C. city council member who who said that the Rothschilds in particular control the weather, um, has been roundly denounced by pretty much everybody. Uh, except, of course, the president. Um, of course, of course. Well, you know, I'm. I we make light of this, but as you guys know, you know, something in the something in the atmosphere has changed, and you know, we talk a lot about um, the various attacks of the Trump administration on the rule of law, and undoubtedly, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, or we talk about, you know, you know, political developments that are threatening or security developments that are threatening. But I think, you know, somewhere in the fabric of our society, something is um, decaying. Uh, and it is not happening uh, simply as a result of nature. Um, but it but it's happening because of active leadership of people in power, including, I believe, the president of the United States and those around him. And and what I illustrate this with, and, and some anybody who might follow me on Twitter might know, know this, is that uh, last Friday, I think, I saw a, a, a tweet from the Urban Institute, which pointed out that by 2045, the majority population in the United States would be groups we once thought of as minorities, African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians. Uh, And in fact, we're well on the way to this. This has been happening and known to be happening for a long time. By 2020, this is going to be true for 
uh, everybody in the United States under 18. Uh, and of course, you know, there are states like California and the United States already that, that are minority majority states. But I thought it's worth noting. I tweeted out something. The the line I used in, in, in you know in the tweet had to do with something like this is a strength for the United States. Our diversity is our strength. It helps us in the global economy. It helps us have a rich culture. It helps us in, in many ways as a society. And I thought it was pretty anodyne stuff. And within uh, moments, I started to receive hate mail, hate tweets. Uh, and and clearly somewhere in some Reddit discussion or some, you know, bot command center someplace, somebody decided that what we're, they were going to do is come after me for this, suggesting that by noting this fact, this demographic trend, I was promoting white genocide, uh, as Jews are wont to do. Uh, they ran, you know, anti-Semitic caricatures, uh, threatened my wife, threatened my kids, threatened me. You know, but there were tweets that were like, I know what you look like. Um, I will be waiting for you in the street. You won't see me coming there. And, and it wasn't, you know, one tweet or 10 tweets or 15 tweets. There were hundreds of these. And, you know, I would you know, report them, and then that was time-consuming, and I would block them, and that was time-consuming. Now, by the way, you know, there must have been a way for Twitter to say, gee, if there's a picture of a long-nosed guy, you know, you know, rubbing his hands together and saying something about Auschwitz, maybe that shouldn't be okay. But, um, but you know, I, I when you know, I grew up in a in a world in which perhaps 20 times before 2016 or 50 times before 2016, I'd ever encountered any form of anti-Semitism. And I would say it is not an exaggeration that since 2016, I've encountered this thousands of times. Um, and it clearly has to do not just with social media, but with the fact that the president of the United States, as well as other leaders, including Vladimir Putin, the, the you know Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Brexit crowd in the UK, the you know the you know UKIP crowd, um, uh, have been actively promoting this, and to, and to have the president essentially embrace ideas like Mexicans are rapists or Muslims are bad and we should keep them out of the country or you know, picking on African-Americans on a regular basis or using code words about Jews like globalists um, empowers these people in a way that they have not been empowered in any country since the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe in the 1930s. Um, and it's clearly going to get worse because as the president finds himself more and more in a corner, he's going to do everything he can to inflame his uh, his supporters uh, and this small group of really extreme supporters that were fed by Bannon and Breitbart and Fox and Stephen Miller and John Kelly with his uh, shepherding through of the immigration uh, policies early in this administration uh, and via Charlottesville and via the attack on people, you know, kneeling during the national anthem and the attack on African-American women legislators and, and all sorts of things. But that this this is, you know, in some ways the most pernicious and yet in, in a most dangerous component of this era in the United States and across Europe. And I just, I you know, I don't want to dwell on my own experience, but I thought it would be useful to get your different takes on it. And let me start with you, Ed, because, you know, you're the, you know, we've we've seen this in, in Europe with UKIP. Uh, we see nationalism um, in India with, the you know, Hindu Nationalist Party there. We is you've written about the decline of liberalism 
meaning something other than liberal views, but what 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 it, do you do you see this as a trend? This kind of institutionalized hatred. Unfortunately, I do. I mean, your very um, reasonable tweet, the one that prompted such a sort of vile outpouring of, of anti-Semitism, uh, I think touches on what on what's happening. America is, um, you know, first in the queue to become a, a minority majority country. Uh, there are countries in Europe that, that might follow sort of 50 or 100 years later. Um, like Britain, but America is very much ahead in, in early 2040s, and it's never happened before. Um, and I think that that is um, creating status anxiety amongst whites who are doing less well, that is being exploited um, uh, in, in diabolical ways um, by the likes of Donald Trump, Steve Bannon on this side of the Atlantic, and all the characters you mentioned on the other side. I should add um, that it's not just UKIP. Um, very disturbing um, uh, revelation that Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, was a member of this secret Facebook group, which was apparently, which told its members impenetrable to outsiders, that went beyond the usual anti-Zionist um, rhetoric that, you know, the left, um, the left have in, in Britain and Europe um, to very clearly biological racism against Jews. This is the leader of the Labour Party, and this is uh, potentially Britain's next prime minister. And so, I, you know, the, the, there's that sort of added um, dimension in British politics, which I find very disturbing. I'm not, I'm not Jewish, but, um, you know, I've got a lot of Jewish friends in Britain um, who, you know, I've asked over the years about whether they perceive um, prejudice to be on, on the rise. And most have been pretty, pretty um, reassuring um, about the lack of anti or the the, the receding of anti-Semitism in Britain. But I don't think they are anymore. Um, there, there is something, there is something new. The guardrails we talk about um, in terms of sort of the legal protection of democracy, um, you know, are are, are looking uh, wobblier than they were a couple of years ago. But e equally important, probably a lot more important, are the cultural guardrails that we took really as axiomatic in, in, in post-war Europe and, and the United States are much less firm than we thought they were, that, that things that we thought could never happen again are now not inconceivable. And, you know, the kinds of abuse to which you've been subjected, um, uh, for which m many, many sympathies, uh, you handled it with great grace, I thought, uh, um, are unfortunately metastasizing, and uh, you know I don't know I don't know other than what the solution is, other than to say, people take their cue from their leaders. Uh, Trump is giving a green light to this kind of behaviour, uh, and if you think of it on the sort of uh, uh, on the opposite side of the coin, when you have leaders sending good signals, you know you think of Nelson Mandela um, and what could have happened in South Africa if there'd been a vindictive post-apartheid leader. You think of Mikhail Gorbachev and what could have happened um, in the late 80s in the Soviet Union if there'd been, you know, a Stalinist in that role as opposed to him. Well, now we have got people who are stoking, um, pouring paraffin onto these prejudices and, 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 and the cultural guardrails are not as strong as we thought. So... Uh, all I can do is, is say we are, you know, we are in DEFCON 3 mode, I think. We, we need to be ultra-vigilant uh, in how we respond to this. Well, I think the question of how do we respond to it is a really important one here. Before we get into the sort of specifics of that and how others have responded to it, I just, I'd like to hear sort of Corey and Rose's take. So, Corey, what about you? Yeah, so I can't add anything substantive to what has already been said, but what I, I do want to add to what's been said is what I think all of us need to do, which is to say, yes, it is true, we, we are degrading the norms and the institutions that have made our country safe, that have made it 
the place where people in danger go and then feel incredibly grateful for the protection of the rule of law and of social tolerance and of setting guardrails for behavior that we expect of our public officials. Um, and that that has been the greatest achievement of our country. And it is what has enabled so many other achievements of our country. And all of us have a responsibility to stand up, to be counted, to hold hands with our friends and our neighbors and our co-religionists and our non-co-religionists and our fellow Americans and other people around the world who believe as we do. This, where we are headed is a dangerous place and all of us are going to be responsible for where we end up. Rosa? Yeah, no, I, the only thing I would add to that is, is just to really emphasize something that Corey said. Um, uh, which is that we we have this fantasy, I think particularly we Americans and probably the British as well, you know, we're, we're these countries where we we believe that we invented the rule of law and that we have these institutional and legal guardrails that will will protect us and keep us on the right track. And those laws and institutions don't exist independently of our culture and our cultural commitments to them. Um, that this is this, you know, I was, there's that famous quote by uh, everybody's favorite uh, long dead jurist, learned hand uh, to the effect of, you know, when, when, you know, when justice lives in the hearts of men and women, you don't need any constitution or laws. And when justice dies in the hearts of men and women, no laws and no constitution can save it. Uh, right. and, and I think that that's that's very powerfully right. And, and what we're what we're seeing right now in, in the United States, for instance, is a struggle over whether the not about whether institutions and laws will prevail over lawlessness, but over whether a culture of commitment to standing up for those institutions and laws, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's a little scary, will prevail. And I, I'm not. I'm not sure who who does prevail in this struggle. You know, the, the jury is still out to stick with my my legal metaphors. Um, um, but but, you know, there and, and I, I mean, and th this is very much uh, really just reinforcing what Corey just said. You know, it's up to us if we sit back and think, oh, well, you know, the Constitution will stop this or the courts will stop this or this institution will stop this then we're doomed because institutions don't exist independent of people and laws exactly don't get enforced right. independent of people who, you know, constantly struggle to have them enforced and to make sure that they have real meaning and so forth. So it's, it's, uh, no, it's, it's a very frightening time. I, I, I do, I do think it's, we live at a moment when it feels like a lot of the certainties of certainly the, the post-World War II era in the United States, when I think, you know, up until recently, you'd say it's not a story of uninterrupted progress on, on social and political norms, but it's been a, a largely positive story of greater inclusion and, and greater commitment to fairness and equality. And we clearly are at a moment where all of that is, is in, in jeopardy. Well, I think that's, you know, that's the core issue here. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic um, by the folks from Lawfare that touched upon a theme that we uh, once touched upon on an episode um, about whether the United States was facing a constitutional crisis. Right. And uh, the the conclusions of the authors was that we were not we, sh we 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 were not in a constitutional crisis yet, but that w that what we were seeing was something like constitutional rot. Yes. Um. And I I know that resonates because you you made the argument we're not in a constitutional crisis. I personally have a slightly different view, which is this is semantics. <laughs> It's it's bad enough that, you know, let's you know, let's set aside what we're going to call it. and Let's do something about it. But 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 this idea of rot 
touches upon your notion of norms. Well, rot that, can get you to the same place in the end as crisis. Obviously, crisis I think of as crisis is fast breaking rot. Right, but well, but you know, I think th- this idea that leaders have to act within norms and follow the law in order for institutions to work, and that when leaders both break the law and then other leaders don't act within the norms, um, it can snowball. And what we're seeing here is that, you know, uh, Trump or a few people around Trump embrace racist ideas. And for a whole host of other reasons, Gary Cohn doesn't quit. You know, the people around Trump who are decent people, so-called decent people, they don't quit. The Republican Party doesn't speak out against it and any kind of meaningful way. He does more of it, does the same thing with breaking the law. It gets worse and it gets worse. And we have this snowball effect where laws are broken, power is abused, but also discourse in society is altered because the leaders within the society are, are, are essentially giving license to the worst of us to drive the conversation. Um, and, you know, that to me is way more dangerous than, quote, collusion, because it's 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 the corruption of the American idea and the idea of Western democracy. Um, Ed, I mean, am I overstating this? Am, uh, no, you're not. I mean, one of the sort of disturbing um, parallels I'd hate to uh um, you know, equate Steve Bannon um, to Alexis de Tocqueville. But when Steve Bannon says politics flows from culture, I believe that um, he has a point, and it's a point that stems back to de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville wrote about the strength of America lying in the customs of its people, in their temper, in, in, the, in the attitude of, of everyday Americans. And I think that's absolutely right, or to use a mark, an analogy that really politics is superstructure, culture is base, um, the base. And um, uh, so I don't think it's um, overwrought or overstating things to say that what we consider to be normal, um, uh, polite behavior um, getting devalued and becoming, and that bar being constantly lowered um, is a profoundly troubling signal for the conduct of politics and, and, and the future of the values that we hold there. I don't think that is, I don't think you are overstating things. Well, picking up on that, Corey, you know, he's talking about the idea of, of culture being sort of foundational and politics being superstructure on that. Uh, the, the, the lament or the fear of the alt-right, of the white supremacist movement, of the nationalist movement in many places in Europe is that there is a cultural wave that's changing the nature of their societies, and that's what's to be feared. But actually, by having leaders embrace the hate-filled, intolerant, uh, anti-normative behavior of these these groups, the, the 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 cultural crisis that we face is is something actually different, and that it's it's not a constitutional crisis that Trump is a symptom of, and leading a cultural crisis in America where we're, we're seeing um, corroded fundamental pillars of, of, of how we you know, have functioned as a democratic society so far. And I'm not saying we've been racism or hate-free. Those things have all been there. But there's been a net struggle against them, and there have been certain norms about people in positions of power and how do they behave, and those are all being thrown out. So I mostly agree with that, David. Uh, I would say a couple of things, though. One it's is that— It's not going to make a very good mug. You know, if the mug says, David, <laughs> David, you are somewhat correct. You know, David, you're in the same zip code as being right. It's not— well, actually, maybe it could be a mug that with heated liquid in it, you become more right. Yeah, that's and a nice thing. And then as the cup empties, it could like a like a rheostat. Um, so a couple of things about that. 
the first, I absolutely agree with you about the disgraceful behavior of our leadership and not just the president, but way, way too many important people in our government are saying, well, it's not my job to care about that. I'll get the things right that it is my job to care about. And that's that's the only standard I should be held to. And that may be a sensible, practical choice. It is not a moral choice, or it is a moral choice that you fail the moral test of. Uh, second thing is that, yes, of course, leadership really matters, that, that racists and anti-Semites and those who would incite violence um, have as their champion, the president of the United States, makes the challenge for all of us that much harder. The only place where I disagree with you is that um, the, the research that I did in the fall, right before President Trump's election, on who is supporting him and why, uh, that that there are some people who are supporting him for economic reasons, some people who are supporting him for cultural reasons, some people supporting him out of fear, some people supporting him out of flat-out bigotry. And the challenge for those of us who refuse to allow America to become what the president wants it to become and what the people people supporting him want to become is is to separate right the president won because he built well if we assume the president won for purposes of argument he won by putting together a coalition that produced enough um enough electoral college votes and we need to peel that coalition apart right that there are people who are fearful of how the country's changing and we need to hold their hands and tell them all the great things about how the country's changing, that they can come on in the water's fine. Uh, the people who believe their profession is going away because it's being stolen by others, we need to either help them be competitive in their profession or help them find a new one, right? These are solvable problems that defang the, the current febrile politics that we're experiencing. And and we need to deny the president the support he had in the election of 2016 by helping people solve problems and helping people face change bravely. Okay. Rosa, I just want to go back to the discussion that we had before and this question of constitutional crisis. Um, have you changed your view? Are we in one yet? No. Is the is okay, and so what's the red line? How will we know when we are in one? I think I, I actually would would urge our listeners to take a look at the the article that you mentioned in Lawfare by Ben Wittes uh, uh, and one of his colleagues. I've forgotten the name of his co-author, um, which is a very thoughtful rundown of the arguments uh, for and again thinking about constitutional crises. And and I'm inclined to to agree with them that constitutional crisis is not when you get people making noises to the effect of, I will thumb my nose at your norms and I will thumb my nose at your institutions and rules, but when they actually disobey things like court orders in a, in a systematic way. You know, that, that the point where we, we shift from uh, constitutional rot, which we are certainly well into and which I agree can, can bring us ultimately to the same place, but the point where we shift from constitutional rot to constitutional crisis is when hypothetically, let's say, Mueller uh, issues subpoenas to President Trump and he says, I won't obey them. Uh, and it goes to court and the judge says, no, you have to obey it. And he says, no, I refuse. And nobody does anything. That's constitutional crisis. You know, when, when you and I don't think we're I don't think we're there. I think we're well, let, let, let me just edging offer, towards it. <laughs> let me offer you a gentle sort of nudge in the other direction just to test the theory. OK, so there are several examples we have of people ignoring the law without consequences because people on Capitol Hill won't actually enforce the law. Uh, and this includes constitutional issues like the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. It includes ethical standards and, and issues 
Um, it 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 may well include issues like um, uh, violations associated with things that like recent revelations about NDAs, where the the you know people who are in public agreements. right right where pub, people in public jobs were. Uh, asked to sign non-disclosure agreements with penalties that may or may not accrue uh, to private individuals if they violate them. Um, but they also include things like people testifying uh, in front of congressional committees and saying, I'm just not going to answer your question. And they say, is this executive privilege? And they say, well, it might be, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, and so they're defying um, the Congress, but nobody is holding them accountable for it. Now, aren't all those kinds of things? I'm still going to go with rot, David. <laughs> really? They're, they're, yeah, aren't, I mean, I, they, aren't they close? You know, they're, they, they, they edge us towards crisis. Yeah, you get, an, you get enough rot, you end up in a crisis. Um, and I think we are getting closer and closer to a crisis. But, but no, the, the crisis is when Congress says, yeah, we are actually going to inform you. We're going to hold you in contempt, witness. You know, we're going to put you in jail. And the president says, no, I'm going to have the military protect that person so you can't put them in jail, Congress. You know, when you get an actual clash between different branches of our constitutional government, between the executive branch and the judiciary, or between the executive branch and, and Congress, uh, when you get a, a clear clash and a clear refusal backed by, you know, force or the threat of force to abide by constitutional norms. That's, I think, when you say you're in a crisis. Again, I think this is semantics to some extent in the sense that when I say, look, we're not in, you know, and, and I'm a law professor. And when we talk about constitutional crisis, we tend to have very specific things in mind, maybe more so than than lay people. But it doesn't really matter in the sense that you know, whether you want to call it a constitutional crisis, and I don't, or whether you want to call it just constitutional rot, it's bad. It's very bad. And as I said, you know, you can get to the same place. Uh, you get enough erosion of norms, you get the kind of quiet, creeping constitutional decay, and you get you you end up destroying democracy and killing it just as dead in the end if you destroy it through a civil war where you have one branch or group saying we will not obey the law anymore and we will fight rather than obey the law, um, you end up, you know, democracy ends up just as dead if instead of a war, you just get a kind of slow, slow, yeah, we actually don't care about those norms. Yeah, we actually don't care about those norms. Yeah, it's okay with us if Congress doesn't protect the special counsel. Yeah, it's okay with us if Congress doesn't stand up for its own powers. Yeah, it's okay with us if the courts, instead of being defied, if the courts get intimidated in subtle ways and simply choose not to enforce the law. It's okay with us if the legislatures pass laws that permit previously impermissible behaviors, you know, that, that you get to the same place in the end, which is that the end of American democracy in any meaningful sense, whether you get there slowly, little bit by little bit, or whether you get there with a violent bust up. So, so there's saying it's constitutional rot is not the same as saying, oh, don't worry, folks. And, you know, on the on the contrary, there are ways in which I think the the rot is the deeper threat and more insidious because, you know, the 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 open disobedience mobilizes people to fight. Right. It mobilizes people to stand up. It mobilizes people to say this is an emergency. We have to do something. And one thing that we do know about human psychology, right, is that we're we're better at noticing crises if they happen quickly and they're very extreme. Whereas if we what we get is the kind of little chipping away here and chipping away there and another chip here, you know, we are we are the equivalent of the much maligned frog in the boiling water. And unlike the frog who apparently does hop out and save itself because frogs are smarter than people, you know, we don't. We we tolerate it. And and this is historically, you know, you you, you say, well, gosh, you know. How did ordinary Germans come to turn a blind eye and in many cases participate in the Holocaust? How did ordinary Hutus turn a blind eye and in many cases participate in the Rwandan genocide and so on and so forth? You know, the answer is precisely because it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen that everything is normal and then one day, you know, the genocide heirs of the Nazis say, guess what, everybody, we're slaughtering our neighbors today. You know, it happens because one day the 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 Future genocide dares say, oh, you know, the Hutus or the Jews or whoever are they're like cockroaches, you know, and the next day they say, you know, and they're taking your jobs. And the day after that, they say, gosh, we really ought to do something about it. And, you know, and it's this sort of slow, steady drip, 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 which which habituates people to 
to view as normal behaviors and actions and attitudes that once would have shocked them. Uh, and so then they don't do anything when the crisis comes. And, and you know, I, that, that's, that's why, to me, saying it's not a constitutional crisis isn't the same as saying we can be complacent. On the contrary, it's, it's this steady erosion of norms that frightens me in many ways much more. Well, I think that's a really powerful point, Ed. And, and you know, I think in some ways what it's saying is if you're waiting for the red line to be crossed, you're contributing to the problem. And it seems like, you know, there's a lot of people on Capitol Hill who are waiting for the red line to be crossed on the legal issues. There's much less, by the way, outcry for people waiting to some, for some red line to be crossed on on issues of sowing social division, racism, and so forth. And we saw an example of the, the, the former over the weekend when the president of the United States started attacking Robert Mueller. And again, you know, we can have a debate about, you know. It was disgraceful. Right. But it's like, we, you know, we have a debate about where is the red line or, you know, what is the the president of the United States is the head of the executive branch of the government. And he seems to be in the process of uh, uh, on a regular basis, browbeating the Justice Department, browbeating the intelligence community, browbeating the State Department. It's not just emotional. He's the boss. And he's sending out regular messages saying, don't do this. This is a witch hunt. This guy is a bad guy. These pe people in the White House are amplifying the message. They're sending out messages saying, you are, you know, straying outside the line if you don't take this point of view. This person should be fired. This is a you know witch hunter, whatever. And it's it's a a, a a bizarre situation where the head of the executive branch of the government seems to be giving out orders to his government, and yet nobody thinks that's serious enough. To, to to actually do anything about it. Lindsey Graham says, well, this is would if he fired Mueller, it'd be the beginning of the end. Well, it's not the firing of Mueller. It's it's forcing and bullying people throughout the administration to do stuff like firing Andrew McCabe, the the former acting uh, FBI director. Um and I, I'm I'm just wondering what your take on 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 how this kind of cultural decay has happened. Um elsewhere in the U.S. political system out beyond Trump? Well, there is a, there is a culture production uh, machine um, here. I mean, we, we saw um, Monday morning Trump tweeting that Sean Hannity was appearing on Fox and Friends. It's great excitement that his, his pal Hannity was going to be on TV twice, twice on Monday as opposed to the normal once. And I think the excitement, you know, uh, speaks volumes, um, is that Trump has... Ian Hannity and the whole infrastructure um, around him, uh, around Hannity and and in the and in the conservative media, not just the Rupert Murdoch-owned conservative media, but in the eco the, the info wars and the Breitbart's and so forth, um, uh, a much more powerful tool than all the what what we used to call in Britain the dignified parts of the Constitution. Um, you know, the, con the first branch of government, the second branch of government, the third branch of government are all beholden to what the base, the conservative base out there thinks. And that base is fed its narrative um, from Trump's tweets through to the Sean Hannity's and the Laura Ingraham's and so forth. And then through a thousand points of darkness um, uh, on radio, internet, and TV, um, to the base out there, which then determ determines the one all-important number, which is Trump's approval ratings in the Republican Party. Forget his national approval ratings. They are immaterial. What matters is his Republican approval rating, and those remain uh, at a at about 80%. And whilst he keeps it up there, then the first branch of, co of government, uh, Congress, will not do its job. The Republican Party will not do its job. Whatever Lindsey Graham says will amount to nothing. Um, there will be a hundred red lines that he might set um, that Trump will cross with no consequence. What Marco Rubio tut tuts in his sort of ambivalent um, uh, try and pl uh, please all people kind of way will be utterly immaterial. And Trump knows this. And so when Trump, you know, seems like a five-year-old kid, you know, tweeting, hooray, 
um, Sean Hannity's on TV again. Um, it, it, he knows exactly what he's doing. That that is his strength. He 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 holds the power to in, intimidate every single Republican running for re-election. So I want to disagree slightly with Ed. Uh, which is, I do not think the president holds the power to intimidate every Republican running, uh, despite the fact, and Ed is exactly right, that the president's uh, approval ratings remain disgracefully high among Republicans. But if the president had the ability to intimidate Republicans running, uh, Republicans in office, he would be able to help get Republicans elected. And that does not appear to be true based on the special elections so far, including the most recent one in Pennsylvania, where there was an 11-point Republican structural advantage and Trump had won the district by 20 points. So um, Republicans, there are a good number of Republicans so repelled by the president that they won't show up at the polls and won't get Republicans elected, and the kinds of Republicans that the president is trying to whip into running for office do not appear to be the kind of Republicans that actual Republicans will vote for, and certainly not that independents will vote for. So um, I think the president's coattails are actually extraordinarily short. And every time he gives one of these big, fun-for-him rallies, at which he says shocking things, I actually think the tide recedes further for the potential for the president's support. I could be wrong. It could be that the, uh, that the elections this fall will be a resounding reaffirmation of the 2016 electoral verdict, but that's not what I think I'm seeing. Well, it'll be interesting because if what you say ha- is 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 likely to happen actually happens um and the democrats do take uh at least one house of the Cong- uh, one, one one house of the congress the investigations that the republicans have been unwilling to have will begin and you know one of the things that i worry about is that as we get closer and closer to November and that outcome becomes more and more likely, and as we get closer and closer to November and Mueller's investigation grows hotter and heavier after the Trump organization, after members of the Trump family and so forth, that the president is going to be more compelled to stray outside the norms and to fire up his base and, I, you know, one of the troubling sort of subtexts, and we've only got two, three minutes here, so I'll go to each of you on this. But one of the troubling subtexts of this whole thing is the impulse on both sides that the solution lies in taking to the streets. Now, I'm all for the March 24th march and marches against the NRA because nothing else seems to be working. Um, and I think it's important to in the women's march sent a very important message. But there is this kind of vibe, and I get this, you know, some of these attack tweets I've gotten, you know, we are out there, we are an army, we won't tolerate it, we won't tolerate it if you come from our guns, we won't tolerate it if you start letting in other people and promote white genocide, we are going to fight. And Trump has these rallies, and the rallies, you know, have very, very scary echoes in history of trying to stir up mobs. and 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 you know you sort of think well the people in positions institutional positions of power to make a difference aren't going to do anything and the, there's going to be no alternative but for this to be worked out in the streets and you know I'm overstating it slightly but Rosa doesn't that trouble you a little bit in terms of the nature of discourse at the moment <laughs> Uh, it's not the biggest thing that troubles me, although, yeah, it does trouble me. Um, but, but you know, I actually wanted to link that back, David, to something you said at the very beginning of this discussion. Um, you know, the tweet of yours that set all this off was your tweet referencing uh, census findings that by 2020, um, uh, young Americans will be uh, majority minority and by 2050, the entire United States will be majority minority. And and I, I, I think partly what we're 
what we're seeing and what is scary about this moment when I think about the upcoming midterm elections in November and, and indeed about the presidential elections uh, in, in two and a half years is that I, I think for, for a, a while there, there was a little bit of a tendency amongst Democrats in particular uh, and among many of the more moderate Republicans to say, oh, this really outrageous right wing stuff that is demographically doomed, you know, that the the writing on the wall is on the side of more progressive, moderate political viewpoints because uh, this nation is ceasing to be dominated by white people and dominated by males. And, you know, we are becoming a more urban country, a more diverse country, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to translate into uh, electoral successes for Democrats and certainly into the defeat of really right wing candidates at the at, at the polls. But but I think that, you know, part of what we have been seeing uh, steadily over the last 20 years is that the right, the far right has been willing to make that their battleground, you know, to precisely to make that their battleground, the sense of, you know, whites being under threat with all these foreigners coming in and so forth, and these city-dwelling liberals who take the side of the foreigners um, and the Jews who control the weather, um, you know, th th and that they will fight that any way they can, uh, in part through gerrymandering and in part through voter suppression efforts. And so I worry about that, that sense of we won't tolerate it turning into voter suppression in November, turning into voter suppression in the next presidential election, because the demographic shifts only matter if the changing populations translate into changing votes, which they cannot do if electoral districts are essentially rigged and if people are prevented in one way or another from voting, whether by restrictive rules that seek to make it ever more difficult to register and actually vote or by angry mobs of people at polling places who intimidate voters. And, and, and that, I think, is, is the thing, the reason that I don't feel at all uh, sanguine about the outcome of the midterm elections. We are already in a country where it is crystal clear that the majority of Americans rejects what is going on in Washington, and yet we have been unable to translate that in a consistent way into electoral results in part because we have a system that increasingly is is designed to prevent that from being translated into electoral results. Ed? Uh, I, yeah, look, I, I, I'm also um, a little bit skeptical of popping the champagne too soon before um, November. You know, special elections are special elections. The ones in Alabama, the Senate race, um, in December and the special election in Pennsylvania's 18th district last week were particularly unusual um, and uh, from the Democratic point of view, exciting results because these are places Republicans never lose. Um, so, you know, if you extrapolate that, then we are heading for a potential Democratic landslide, uh, even a realignment in November. And if that happens, all the good things that you've spoken about um, in terms of the uh, check on Donald Trump and the, the Republican Party beginning suddenly, you know, very belatedly to find its conscience um, might well flow from that. And, and of course, the impeachment hearings. But I want to see it happen first, um, that there are lots there are lots of things that can that can um, complicate that between now and then. And, and, you know, the next six months politically are going to be absolutely fascinating and absolutely crucial to the future of the Republic. Corey, what's your expectation for the next six months? Uh, my expectation for the next six months is that uh, the turbulence is going to continue to increase. The president is going to become more and more erratic as the as the noose tightens uh, on, on revealing what happened during the elections and any uh, complicity that the president or the people around him had uh, with Russian interference in our elections. And I, I never thought that this was an administration that was going to smooth out as people uh, got settled in. But the president evidently thinks it's smoothing out. He gave a 
an interview in which he said he's really got the hang of it now, so he's going to stop taking other people's counsel so much and trust his own judgment. And that sounds to me like a recipe uh, for worse policy, for continued rot of the kind Rosa speaks so beautifully, eloquently to, and the danger that it sounds like all of us are agreed our nation is facing. Uh, we all need to stand up straight and hold hands and be clear about our values, about the importance of our institutions, about our own personal comportment and involvement to, to hold a line and let the electoral process and the legal process uh, sort this out. Excellent, excellent points. And uh, uh, really glad that uh, all three of you would take the time to sort of think this through in a way that was not caught up in the news cycle. We will, of course, revert to being caught up in the news cycle uh, in the next episode of Deep State Radio, and we will revert to scurrying around like a bunch of cockroaches when the lights come on in the room. Because, you know, that's that's what we do. I, do, I should say, by the way, that there was a poll in, uh, in The Hill uh, that suggested that 74% of Americans considered that policy was controlled by the deep state. I did not see this necessarily as a bad thing, but I was delighted that uh, Mika Ogang, who Ogang, who was on our last uh, uh, episode, saw fit to tweet out that they did not reference uh, any of us specifically here at Deep State Radio, and that it was not a fear of Deep State Radio held three quarters of America in his grips, but, but, but concerns about the deep state. Um, so you guys are off the hook and thanks to Mika for that. Um, in any event, we are here at the, uh, uh, end of this episode. I want to thank you, Corey. I want to thank you, Rosa. I want to thank you, Ed. And I want to ask everybody to join us again very, very soon for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.